we found that 92% of towns and cities do allow home sharing and 8% don't. So nine out of 10 places you can do this. Now, the ones that say no are usually the bigger cities. Best ever listeners, before today's episode, I want to invite you to join us in Keystone, Colorado, February 20th through 22nd. It is the 2020 Best Ever Conference. And not only do I want to invite you to join us, I want to invite you to earn 15% for every ticket that you're responsible for selling should you join as an affiliate for the conference. Great way to earn money. And also, if you're planning on attending, great way to pay for your ticket, essentially. You get enough sales. So you can go to BEC20.com. And in the top left corner, it says earn 15% as an affiliate. You can click that, join the affiliate program, and you got all the resources that you need to share the good word about the Best Ever Conference in Keystone, Colorado. And we will be talking more about this on future episodes. But for now, go check out BEC20.com and that affiliate page. You can earn 15% as an affiliate, and we will see you in Keystone, Colorado. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. What's today? Brian Page. How you doing, Brian? I'm great. Good to be here, buddy. Well, I'm looking forward to our conversation and a little bit about Brian. He became a millionaire in his 20s as a residential real estate investor, lost it all in 2008, and then created a training called BNB Formula, which is now the best-selling Airbnb training out there based in Charleston, South Carolina. So with that being said, Brian, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Sure. I have been a real estate investor for many years. Ever since I graduated from college, I started flipping homes. That was the first thing that I did and flipped a little over 100 properties and did some wholesale deals and multifamily and you name it, I've probably done it. And that was my main business for many, many years up until the big crash around 07, 08. And that was where everything kind of came to a grinding halt. I had a, a huge portfolio of properties that I that I lost and were foreclosed on and I had to find a way to start over. So somehow I backed into this idea of using other people's properties and putting them on Airbnb and that led me down this road and that's what I do in addition to getting back into real estate investing. Couple takeaways from losing it all are what? Couple takeaways. Well, don't over leverage. <laughs> it's not a good idea to leverage yourself and it's also How do you quantify uh, that? Well, for me, I had very little equity in my properties. I had a big portfolio of, of properties, but very little equity. About how and many properties do you have? At the time, I had 23 units, I believe it was. Okay. But that really wasn't the problem. It wasn't the rentals. It was I got into speculative real estate construction okay. and high-end residential construction. And that's something that's high risk. And I built a multi-million dollar home on the beach in North Carolina and had condos being built and all these things. And when the market turned, of course, the first part of the market that got crushed was vacation properties. Mm -hmm. So I would say that had I just stayed with my rentals and flipping business, I probably would have been okay. But I got too big for my britches and got into development and construction. And so I would say be very careful if you're getting into speculative real estate. Okay. And noted on that front. It's interesting that the high-end spec homes that you described, you mentioned they were more vacation homes. And now here we are with Airbnb and your BNB formula. You're still focusing on the vacation customer, but you're taking it a different approach. Do you own 
the properties that you're doing the Airbnbs with? I don't, but let me go back to what the first thing you said. It's actually vacation rentals and Airbnb are not the same thing. Actually, it's a very small minority of people on Airbnb that are traveling for vacation. Okay. That's more VRBO, vacation rental by owner. Airbnb is a whole other subset and we can get into that. But what I did is I started leasing properties and I got written permission from the owners to list them on Airbnb. And I did that over and over and over again across a whole bunch of units. And that's how I started making a whole bunch of money with Airbnb. And now I'm back into acquiring. I am buying properties and renovating them and turning them into Airbnbs. But my primary business and what I teach is how to use someone else's properties to do this. So a lot of your listeners, of course, are real estate investors, a lot of people listening right now. And that's great. If you own property, you can do this. But the vast majority of people that go through my training have no real estate background whatsoever. So I encourage them to lease. Okay. And will you educate me a little bit more on Airbnb, most of them not being vacation people? Well, Airbnb is similar to the hospitality industry as a whole. If you look at hotels and motels and the hospitality industry, most people that are staying in hotels are not staying there because they're on vacation. They're staying just because they need a, a short-term place to stay. They're, they might be traveling. They might be coming into an area, but they're not necessarily on vacation. So there's all kinds of reasons people travel. They could travel because they're relocating and they need a place to live for a few weeks. They could be going to an event in a particular city, for example, in cities with big convention centers. That's actually how Airbnb started in San Francisco, was near a convention center. People travel to go to visit colleges. They go to travel because they're on business. They're, they're going to a town for a couple of days. There's all kinds of reasons people travel, and it's generally not vacations. Because we've seen it time and time again that people are successful doing what I teach in the most random places that are not at all tourist destinations. <laughs> and I know that for a fact because some of my students are in towns of under 10,000 people I've never even heard of, and they're doing really, really well. So the primary model is getting permission from landlords to use their property as an Airbnb. So you're basically subletting it on a short-term basis, right? Well, there's two models. The first model is leasing it where you control the property for, let's say, 12 months, and then you relist it on Airbnb. And let's say it's a $1,000 rental. You're going to make somewhere between two and $3,000 on average on that unit. So after you pay for utilities and your rent, you know, per, you month. Making, yeah, per month, you can right. be making 1000 or 1500 or even more. Now, that's on a cheaper $1,000 rental. So that's one model. The other model is where you partner with the owner. So you approach an owner and say, hey, you're asking $1,000 for your unit. What if I get you 1300 for your unit or even more? I propose that you let me list it on Airbnb and we will split everything we make, all the profit, and I'll guarantee you your first $1,000 so at least you make that. And we'll do month to month. And if you don't like the arrangement at any point, I'll take a hike and you can go back to renting it long term. Mm-hmm. And I basically teach people how to pitch these owners because I was an owner for many years, had a lot of properties. And I had to think about what the objections are and how to overcome those objections and why people might want to consider doing this versus long-term rentals. And I've interviewed some people who do this on the show. And one thing I found surprising, but it made sense once they explained it is the property is actually taken care of better with short-term rentals than long-term. Yes, that, you that shocks people. Yeah, yeah that, it shocked me whenever I heard <laughs> and this person explain. I was like, that does make sense. Can you just elaborate yeah. quickly on that point? Yeah, well, one of the biggest objections I got meeting with dozens, if not over 100 owners face-to-face was, hey, Brian, it's a cool idea, but too much wear and tear on the property. And I don't know who's coming and going. All these people dragging their luggage in and out of the property. I just don't like the idea. So I used to play this little game with the owners. And I said, okay, I want to play a quick game with you. It's called 
tenants versus guests. And so I'm going to make a statement. I just want you to think of whether this is more likely to happen with a tenant <laughs> or with a guest. And I said, okay, so I'm going to, I'm going to speak from personal experience here. I'm talking to the owner. I said, okay, somebody paints the third bedroom pink without permission. Is that going to happen with a tenant or a guest? <laughs> somebody leaves their car on blocks in the driveway or somebody's dog digs holes all over the yard and destroys it over the course of a year. Is that going to happen with a guest? Well, no, because my guests don't have pets, for example. Somebody's ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend shows up at two in the morning, kicks the front door in. Somebody puts a satellite dish on the roof. You go on and on and on. So all these nightmares that happen are with tenants. And I've had a lot of nightmare tenants. But with guests, it's a different mentality. It's a different psychology. Guests don't treat the property like it's theirs. They don't say, this is my property. and You can't come in here. And they look at it like they're a guest. They're there for two nights, one night, three nights, and then they're gone. So the respect level is completely different than it is with tenants. You don't see the wear and tear. And then additionally, the cleaning company is coming in every couple of days and cleaning that place to be immaculate. Because if my property is not immaculate, I'm going to get bad reviews. Nobody's going to book the place on Airbnb. So my owners are always really shocked when they come in in month four or five and they look at the property and like, this thing is in the best shape I've ever seen it. This thing is immaculate. And I'm like, yeah, that's what I do. Mm-hmm. So they're very, very happy. And then owners all the time are like, hey, dude, I got some other units that are coming vacant soon. You want to take those too? So yeah. It, that's kind of how it works. It makes sense after it's explained, but I imagine 90% of those conversations, that question is asked and you have to change the perception of the owner. Yeah, uh, you got to uh, educate them. You really yeah. do. And one of the biggest objections is what about liability? What if somebody falls True. and slips and falls and, and sues me and all this stuff? So the cool thing is there's an entire insurance industry that's sprung up around short-term rentals. So for very little money, you can get not only a liability policy to cover if anybody gets sued, but you can also get a policy that's specifically designed for short-term rentals. And I like to just pay for the policy myself. So I tell the owner, look, not only am I going to take excellent care of your property, I'm going to insure it. And on top of that, Airbnb has a $1 million guarantee. So you got that, you got the insurance that I'm paying for, you got your own insurance. So your property's insured three different ways. When was the last time a tenant offered to insure your property? So they're like, okay, I get what you're saying here. So I overcome all those objections with reasonable arguments. Would you say you make more money relative to the risk when you work with a landlord versus when you own your own property and do it? Well, that all depends on how you quantify risk. So somebody that's brand new to real estate, has never been a real estate investor, I strongly recommend they don't rush out and buy a property and put it on Airbnb because they don't really know the right locations to purchase in and all that kind of stuff. An experienced real estate investor, of course, buy property because you're going to build wealth, you're going to build equity. Why not own the property? But the ROI on the small investment that you're going to get doing a lease is just unbelievable because you're talking first month's rent and deposit and maybe some furnishings if it's not already furnished. So for $5,000, you can get property. It's like if I said to you, how many properties would you buy if they only cost $5,000 a piece? Because <laughs> once you get into it, the cash flow is yours and the cash right. flow is way more than if you just do a long-term tenant, you own the property. So I look at it like, hey, every $5,000 I plop down or even if it's ten grand. I know that that's going to generate ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars a year in net cash flow, and I don't know any other thing in real estate where you can have that kind of ROI on a very small investment. Let's talk about an Airbnb that's gone wrong. <laughs> hey, actually, that's a good question. I've never been asked that. Strangely enough, because you do hear about horror stories, I've never had a horror story. I've had some very messy guests. Luckily, I'm not cleaning the property, so that really just 
cleaning companies like, oh boy, and they charge me a little extra to clean those. And I've never really heard any real horror stories from my students other than messy guests. So occasionally there's small things that are damaged, but what I tell people to do is you can charge people a deposit. So Airbnb will do a hold on their credit card. It could be $100, it could be $500, whatever amount you want. That money is not taken off the card unless you make a claim. But the cool thing is you can make a claim up to a couple of weeks after they leave. So if somebody breaks something, I can make a claim, say, hey, look, I need 50 bucks, and Airbnb will then ask me for proof, and then they'll release that money. So you can do a deposit to cover that kind of stuff. And like I said, you want to be insured for these kind of things. We want to do the business properly. So does it happen? Yeah, I'm sure it happens. Does it happen at the rate that tenants destroy properties? I don't think it's anywhere even close to in that neighborhood. And you got to remember, every guest that comes to Airbnb has already uploaded their identification. So I have a license or a passport on every individual. Their credit card has already been uploaded. They've already paid in advance for their stay before they even show up at your property because that's what Airbnb does. So all these things... It's not like you're just taking a stranger off the street. And not only that, you can see the reviews. So I can say no to anybody that doesn't have good reviews on Airbnb. So there's a lot of safeguards there, which prevents a lot of the riffraff and people that are going to disrespect the property from getting in there. So I'm not saying it can't happen. I'm just saying it's extremely, extremely rare. When you take a look at the political climate in certain areas being against Airbnb, especially in the Northeast and on the West Coast, what do you do as an investor who relies on Airbnb for your cash flow? Okay, that's a great question. And I've been asked this many, many times. So there were a couple of years there where I was teaching this where I didn't really know what to tell people because they would say, well, I don't think it's allowed where I live or I don't know if, what the regulations are here or it's definitely not allowed. So I didn't know how to really handle that because I don't know of every city and every town. So what I decided to do is I hired a research firm and we paid a lot of money to do a study over the course of several months and what we did is we essentially looked at every single town and city in the U.S., over 30,000 people in population. And just so you know, that's 2,000 cities. And we put them in a spreadsheet, and we basically categorized them. And we quantified whether the short-term rentals were allowed, banned, or not. And what we found is really interesting. We found that 92% of towns and cities do allow home sharing, and 8% don't. So 9 out of 10 places you can do this. Now, the ones that say no are usually the bigger cities, usually cities where the hotel industry is very powerful. We're talking San Francisco, New York, Atlanta proper, these kind of places. But what was interesting is as I started researching these cities, I found out that I had many students in all of those cities that were doing well, that had results. And I was like, how are you guys doing this? And so I'd reach out, are you guys breaking the rules or what are you doing? And some of them were, some of them were doing it despite the rules. But most of them were just, hey, Brian, I just drive to the next town over where it's not regulated, not restricted, and that's where I do my Airbnbs. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I started looking into this, and I found people in Atlanta, for example, wouldn't do Airbnbs downtown, but they would do it in any of the 10 other towns that make up that metro area. So I just tell people, look, any kind of real estate is location-specific. So if you're going to open a laundromat, you can't do that in a residential neighborhood. you got to go where it's zoned. And you can't live in a laundromat. you got to go to the residential. So it's the same thing. you got to go where it's allowed. And for most people, that's within a 20, 30-minute drive of where they live, or it could be in their backyard if it's an unrestricted town. So essentially, anywhere that you live in the U.S., you could do it, especially if you're willing to just go where the opportunity is. What's something that we haven't talked about that we should? Hmm. Well, one of the questions I get a lot from people is they doubt that owners would be willing to do this. And they say, well, why in the world would an owner not just do this themselves? And it's a good question. There's many reasons why they wouldn't do it themselves, but I can just tell you, over all the years of doing this, I've never had an owner that said, hey, Brian, that's a great idea. I'm going to go do that right now. 
myself. They just don't do that because you got to put yourself in the shoes of the owners. I am an owner again of properties and many people listening are probably landlords. Most of us just want the least amount of hassle possible. We want to get our rent and we want to make sure our property is going to be maintained and, and taken care of. That's all we care about. We do not want to get in, start another business or handle guests coming and going. And it sounds like a lot of work and it, it can be a lot of work if you don't have a system. So I've never really had that be an issue. I've never had owners just say they're going to do it. So it's really just a matter of, hey, do you want to rent to me or do you want to rent to some other random long-term person? And if I can convince them that I'm the best choice, they're going to lease it to me. And that's a huge opportunity to be able to set up those properties. So that's one of the questions I get a lot. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Let's do it. All right. Let's do it. First, quick word from our best ever partners. Best ever listeners, go to BEC20.com. Look in the top left-hand corner. You can earn 15% as an affiliate. You can join the affiliate program and participate in the conference that way and basically earn a free ticket to the conference, BEC20.com. What if you could earn 10000 per month net cash flow for life? Now you can at the Residential Assisted Living Academy. Gene Corino teaches you how to take a single family house and turn it into a cash flow machine. Visit ralacademy.com to learn more. All right, best ever book you've recently read. Oh man, I just finished a book yesterday and I read a lot of books and it was amazing. It's by Napoleon Hill. It's not the one you're thinking of, probably top of mind. It's called Outwitting the Devil. Really? With Shannon? Unbelievable. Sharon Lecter. It was unpublished for 70 years. I didn't know it came out in 2011, but that book rocked my world and I shared it with other people and they said it's changed their lives. So I can't recommend that strongly enough. Crazy. So I love Three Feet from Gold. I think Sharon participated in that one. I, I can't remember. I did not like Outwitting the Devil at all. It came highly recommended to me by someone, and I just didn't. I didn't. I just didn't. wasn't feeling it. But so many people have said they love it. So best ever listeners, don't listen to me. Okay, uh, there's parts of the book that are slow. So the first yeah, two or three chapters, it, you got to burrow through those. But once you get into the meat of it, it is so good. Huh. Well, agree to disagree on that. <laughs> What's the best ever deal you've done? Best ever deal I've done. Okay. In real estate? Yep. Okay. So in real estate, I would say I bought a fourplex that was fire damaged. It was pretty huge. It was like a 3,500 square foot building. And it was a little tiny sign out front. And I approached the guy who I saw coming out the front door. I said, hey, how much for this thing? And he said, 30 grand. I was like, holy crap. 30 grand for four units, big, big building. And I knew that I could get $800 per unit. I bought it for 30 grand. I ended up fixing up those units. I don't remember what I put into it. It was quite a bit of money to fix everything up, but I ended up flipping it. And I think I made 130 grand on that deal. Mm. So that was a really one of my most profitable deals ever. Probably should have kept it. I now like to acquire and not flip and sell, but uh, that was probably my best deal. What's the mistake you've made in real estate that we haven't talked about already? Mistake that I've made in real estate. Huh. Or maybe thinking about a, a particular transaction, just something that, hey, I missed this, but I won't miss it again. Something yeah, like that. I sometimes will pull the trigger really quick on junk properties and not do a thorough inspection. Mm-hmm. But I've had a couple of those times where it's backfired on me, but not enough to make it an unprofitable deal. So, for example, I just got a house a few weeks ago. And I drove up. I was the first person to respond. It was a wholesaler. I'm on his email list. He sent out this deal. I dropped everything I was doing, rushed over to the house. I was the first person to arrive. And when I got there, there must have been five other pickup trucks that pulled up right after me. So I got on the phone with a guy. I couldn't get in the house. I was speaking through the windows. I just said, look, 
I'm going to pay you exactly what you are asking on this house, but you have to promise me you're going to sell it to me right now. I don't want to get in a bidding war with all these people that are about to look at this house. And he said, deal. So I just bought it. Today I went over there, looked at it. Needs some work, but nothing too major. So I sometimes roll the dice like that and it works out. But I knew that my numbers were good enough that even if there's something majorly wrong with it, it was still going to be a good deal. Best ever way the best ever listeners can get in touch with you. Sure. Well, if they want to learn my strategies of how I'm doing this and how I'm making money with other people's properties and how I do Airbnb and most importantly, how to scale it to six and seven figures a year, then you're going to want to check out my free training. Just go to thefreetraining.com, thefreetraining.com. Brian, thanks so much for being on the show, talking about how to pitch owners about these opportunities to partner up or lease out their properties and make the spread above whatever you're paying them with that partnership or that lease, as well as talking about some things to keep in mind if we are going to do this, like liability insurance, then clarifying some Airbnb stuff that perhaps were there myths about certain perceptions, like what I was mentioning with the short-term rentals being much cleaner and more well taken care of than longer term. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have the best ever day. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate it. What if you could earn 10000 per month net cash flow for life? Now you can at the Residential Assisted Living Academy. Gene Guarino teaches you how to take a single family house and turn it into a cash flow machine. Visit ralacademy.com to learn more.